Our passage this morning is in John chapter 8. It's John chapter 8, verse 17. But before we get there, let me just spend a couple of minutes refreshing y'all's memory of where we are in the book. In John chapter 7, the events of Jesus' teaching there are during the Feast of Tabernacles. And there are a number of rituals. There were a number of rituals in the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And one of them was the ritual of light. It was a ceremony of light where they would bring in these huge candelabra, these these huge torches, and they would light up the temple during the evening, during the festival, during the feast, because the the festival uh, lasted, was a week-long festival. And so they would bring in these huge candelabra into the the courtyard of the temple, the, the the women's courtyard, which is the, the initial courtyard uh, just after the courtyard of the Gentiles. And it would illuminate the entire temple. It was a time of celebration and joy, and some people would even bring their own torches. The light ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles, just to refresh your memory, was to remind the people, it was to commemorate what God did for them in the wilderness with the, the pillar, the column of cloud and the, and the pillar of, of fire. Remember, the, the, he used the pillars to lead them in the wilderness during the 40-year wandering. And so by day it was the pillar of cloud, and by night it was the pillar of fire. Light carried great significance for the Hebrews. It was the symbol of God. And that's, that's kind of chapter 7. I'm, I'm, I'm just touching on some highlights of chapter 7 as in terms of how they relate to chapter 8. But that's just to refresh your memory of, of what we saw towards the end of chapter 7. Then at the beginning of chapter 8, we have the woman who's caught in adultery. The festival is over. It's the day after the, the festival. The woman is caught in adultery. And we saw those events. Then we saw this great declaration from God in verse 12. Verse 12 is... Verse 11 is the ending of the woman caught in adultery. And then verse 12 reads like this. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Here we saw the two deity claims of God, of God in the flesh. Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh, and he's making two claims to deity here in verse 12. Claim number one, he's saying, I'm the I am. I'm the great I am. We saw that, and we'll see more of that later today. The second claim that he made of deity in verse 12 is he says, I'm the light of the world. He's claiming the scriptural symbol of light for God. He's claiming it for himself. He doesn't say, I am a light. I'm a good teacher. I'm a good prophet. He's saying, I'm the light. I'm the teacher. I'm the prophesied prophet. These are two claims to deity that he makes in verse 12, and we've already seen that. The Pharisees challenge Jesus' words, and they say, you need another witness. You're testifying about yourself, and that's not good enough. They could either be referring to the Mosaic law requirement that you needed multiple witnesses in a criminal case, which is really wrong for them to refer to because this is not a criminal case. I mean, it will be when they bring up trumped-up charges against him in six months. But right now, this is a conversation about theology. 
This is not a criminal case, and so they're really not justified in demanding multiple witnesses, even though they could be doing that. Or they could be twisting Jesus' words from John chapter 5, verse 31. Or they could be doing both of those. Then we saw in verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. Jesus' point is that light is self-authenticating. You understand what I mean? Life, light validates itself. If you were asleep this morning at 6 o'clock, 6.15, 6.30, whenever the sunrise was, if you slept in this morning, the sun didn't need you to validate it. It was a beautiful sunrise this morning. I don't know if you saw it. But the sun's light shined whether you saw it or not. It doesn't ask or need you to validate it. Its light illuminates itself. It is self-authenticating. It validates itself. This is what Jesus is saying. I am the light of the world. I don't need the world to testify about my light. Because my light proves itself independent whether anyone observes it. This is just part of the symbolism of light that Jesus is claiming for himself, the symbolism from the Hebrew Bible. Keep reading in verse 14. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus knew his divine origin, but the Pharisees didn't. He knew that as God, he had come from the eternal realm, from the realm of heaven, from the realm of righteousness, from the realm of holiness. They don't know this. They don't know where he comes from or where he's going, where he's returning to. And the reason they don't know his origin or his destination is because in their unbelief, they don't believe he's God. I mean, this is straightforward theology here. Jesus says, I'm God. I came from heaven and I'm going to return to heaven. They don't believe he's God, so they don't think in terms of a heavenly realm. They don't think he came from heaven and they don't think he's returning to heaven because they don't believe that he is God incarnate in their unbelief. That's their attitude. Keep reading in verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. This is Jesus' third claim to deity in this conversation alone. He's claiming here that his judgment is one and the same as the Father's. Jesus is saying, my perception of truth is a one-to-one relationship with the Father's perception of truth. My judgment is a one-to-one relationship with the Father's judgment. He's not saying that he is the Father. The Son is not the Father. And the Father is not the Son. And the Son's not the Holy Spirit, and the Father's not the Holy Spirit. Three members of the Trinity. But we say that God is one because they, each member of the Trinity is so unified. There's such perfect unity that they always act and think consistent with one another. Keep reading in verse 17, which is where we actually get to our passage today. By the way, this is... Chapter 8 is long, but it's really just one long conversation, and so it's, it's unfortunate that we have to break it up in, in multiple Sundays, but 
you know, this, this is just a long conversation, theological conversation that, that Jesus is having with the group there. We see in verse 17, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Jesus is saying my testimony is self-authenticating. It's like this. You want a witness? You're actually wrong in your understanding of the law because this is not a criminal case. But you want a witness? There's only one witness. Because I'm God in the flesh. And I was there in eternity past when we, as the Godhead, when the Father sent me, designed me to come for sinners, to die for your sins. You people that hate me, Jesus is talking to people who hate him. That was an eternity past. There's only one witness. It's not you. You weren't even alive. There was no planet back then. There's only, you want a witness? I present you to you, God the Father. Now, it's true, God the Holy Spirit is also a witness, but Jesus' focus here is God the Father because there's no other witness. Jesus will talk about the Spirit in John chapters, in, in chapters 14 through 16 of the Gospel of John, but here the focus is on the Father. What am I saying? I'm saying He's making His fourth claim to deity. In the Gospel of John, part of our problem is we read the Bible too fast We've got to slow down and enjoy the steak. I mean, this is, this, is, this is a fine piece of meat. Or if you don't eat steak, it's a fine piece of fish. I mean, we've got, we got to slow down and read the text slowly, consistently. Because when you read the Gospel of John, you just see claims to deity, Jesus claiming deity. It's like you're walking through a gold mine. You see some jewels there and some gold there and some I mean, silver there. It's just all over the Gospel of John. Remember the, the purpose statement in, in, in the Gospel of John in John 20. These things are written, John says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through His name. What Jesus is saying is, you don't believe that I'm God in the flesh, you're done. You've believed in a non-Jesus. You believed in a fictional Jesus, the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Jesus of the Mormons, the Jesus of Islam is a non-Jesus. It's a fictional Jesus. And what Jesus is going to say here, if you don't believe that He is God incarnate, then you are unmistakably going to hell. This is where the text is leading us. The Father authenticated Jesus through the words and the works that the Father gave to Jesus, but sadly the Pharisees reject both. Verse 19, so they were saying to Him, where is your Father? Fatherhood is a very important concept in John chapter 8. It's a very important theme. It'll be used 20 times in this chapter. The Pharisees' question exposes their unbelief. It indicts them. Their question indicts them because they live by sight and not by faith. They think Jesus is talking about Joseph, his father, or maybe another man. Maybe the man that your mother had an adulterous affair with, Jesus. I mean, that's what they're going to claim before this chapter's over. I know who my daddy is. You don't know who yours is, Jesus. I mean, that's what the Pharisees are going to accuse Mary of. 
of having an adulterous affair before she was married to Joseph during the engagement period. We'll see that in John chapter 8. They're saying, where's your father? They're thinking in terms of the physical realm, of a physical father. Keep reading in verse 19. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus is speaking in the spiritual realm. The Pharisees are thinking in the material realm. Mary, of course, did not have an adulterous affair on Joseph. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's referring to his father. He has a legal father. You might say adopted father, Joseph. That's not what Jesus is referring to. He's not referring to the physical realm. He's referring to the heavenly realm. He's referring to his father above. He came to reveal the heavenly father. The visible image of God came to reveal the invisible God. You see this in the prologue, John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time, the apostle says. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father has explained him. The Greek word, therefore, explained is where we get, is related to our English word exegete. The Son exegetes the Father. Jesus exegetes the Father. The reason the world doesn't believe that Jesus is God incarnate is very, very simple. This is not complicated. The reason people believe that Jesus was just some dude, just some, some, some cool guy, some guy who kind of chilled in the land of Canaan, little, little wisdom here, little wisdom there. He just kind of walked around strolling. He's just a neat guy. The reason they believe that that is Jesus and that he is not God incarnate is because they reject God. This is simple. The reason the world does not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh is because they reject God. In verse 19, Jesus equates himself with the Father. He says, knowing me is the same as knowing the Father. There is such perfect unity between the two that not only is Jesus' judgment the same as the Father's judgment, but knowing Jesus is the same as knowing the Father, one-to-one relationship. Knowing the Father is the same as knowing Jesus, one-to-one relationship. This is the fifth claim to deity that Jesus has made in this conversation with these Pharisees. In the next verse, the apostle pauses. I mean, this is just kind of like boom, 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 claim to deity, claim to deity, claim to deity, claim to deity, and then the apostle pauses for a minute. He takes the camera and he kind of pans back in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. The treasury is where they would receive donations. It's probably located in the the courtyard of the women. You remember the the scene here of the temple. This is the outer part of the temple, which is the court of the Gentiles. This is the court of the women. And so the women's court and and you have all these various courts, the priest court. And so this is the court of the women and the treasury is somewhere along the colonnades here, and somewhere along the columns in the colonnade, and they had these large chests to collect the money. They were called shafars. Shafar is the Hebrew word for a trumpet. So they had 13 shafars, these, these chests, 
at the top where you put your money, you put your coin, is like the, you know, the part of the trumpet that you, that you put to your mouth and you blow. And then it goes through and it lands in the chest. The reason they did it that way is so that you, know, you put the coin and you didn't have somebody doing, you know, how do I get my hand back in there, you know, kind of stuff they shouldn't do. And so this is the scene, this is, this is the, the area of the temple where all of these events are happening here in the treasury. Jesus is there, or near the treasury. Jesus is there having this conversation with the Pharisees in that area of the temple. Keep reading in verse 20. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. John is telling us they wanted to seize him. We know from chapter 7 that they hated him and they wanted to kill him, but nothing happens without divine authorization. God has set the time and place for each of our deaths. It's already been appointed. Each of our deaths, God has already established that. He sets the time and place for everyone's death, even Messiah's death. That will be six months from now. Keep reading in verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. This is very similar to what Jesus said to them in chapter 7. In the prior chapter, when they were there during the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus said in John 7, verse 33, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. This is very similar to what Jesus is saying here in John 8. He's saying, my time is short, and so is yours. Our time is short. When I die, I am going to heaven to return to my Father, to the place of life, to the place of eternal life. When you die, you cannot come where I am going. In fact, you are unwelcome and unwanted where I am going. If you remain in your current condition of unbelief, then you will die in your sin. Sin here is singular. It's the Greek word hamartia. The singular sin that Jesus is referring to is the sin of unbelief. Refusal to believe in Jesus brings eternal judgment. Like in chapter 7, the Pharisees misunderstand. The religious leaders misunderstand. Look at verse 22. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. In chapter 7, when Jesus said, you can't come, they thought, well, I guess he's going to go to the diaspora, to, 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 the, to the Jews who are scattered among the Gentiles. I guess he's going to go to the Gentiles and teach among them. And here in chapter 8, they're saying, well, he says we can't come with him. I guess he's saying he's going to commit suicide. We're not going to do that. See, the Pharisees can't. It's not that they won't. They can't understand his words. And the reason they can't understand his words, the reason his words are incomprehensible, is because of their unbelief. Unbelief produces blindness. If they would believe, then they could understand his words. His words, to them, have a different meaning. They have a physical meaning, not a spiritual meaning. If they, by their own free will, would believe, then they could understand the spiritual dimension of his words. But what's interesting is there's some irony here, right? I mean, there's a grain of truth to their 
misunderstanding. I mean, he did go to the Gentiles, right? After his, after his crucifixion and his ascension, he goes to the Gentiles. He sends the apostles to the Gentiles, Acts 1.8, 1, Acts 1, right? He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the world, to the Gentiles, to the goyim, to use the Hebrew word. So he did go to the Gentiles. And he did die voluntarily. He didn't commit suicide, of course. But he died voluntarily. John chapter 10, verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, Jesus says, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So there's a grain of kind of truth to what the Pharisees are kind of thinking. But, they're, but as soon as I say that, I also have to say they're totally wrong. Because, of course, he didn't commit suicide. And, of course, he wasn't going to the Gentiles. But he did go to the Gentiles through the apostles that he sent. And he did give up his life voluntarily by obeying the Father. What we're seeing is the master of irony here. The Apostle John, he weaves irony into the text. Jesus then explains the reason why the Pharisees misunderstand him in verse 23 of chapter 8. He says, or it is written for us, and he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. They can't understand him because of where they are from. Sometimes, you know, I can say this because my wife's family's from Boston, outside of Boston. You know, sometimes I can't understand what people are saying up there. Somebody was talking about the haba. The haba. You want a haba of you? My wife had to help me out. They're saying harbor. (laughs) Got it. This is a different misunderstanding. This is a misunderstanding because they're from one realm and Jesus is from a different realm. And they can't understand his realm because they're from the realm of the world and he's from the realm of heaven. He's from the realm of righteousness and holiness and they're from the realm that is characterized by rebellion, the world, the, 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 the cosmos diabolicus to use the Greek words, the the devil's world, the devil's world system. They refuse the heavenly light and the heavenly life. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Anothen in John chapter 3, verse 3. Anothen, the Greek word which is translated again, can also mean from above. We need uh, to be born from above in order to have life from above so that we have sight from above. If you do not trust in Jesus, not a fictional Jesus, but a Jesus who is God in the flesh, then you are blind. You don't have heavenly sight because you have not been born of heaven, from heaven, a second time, again, but from heaven as opposed to being born physically, which we all initially were, in this realm, in the devil's world system. We need a second birth to be born spiritually from the realm above so that we can see the things from above. 
so that we can have eyes to see the things not seen, so that we're no longer spiritually blind to see the things of God. This is why the Pharisees can't understand Jesus because they won't believe that He is who He said He is. And therefore they are spiritually blind. The unbeliever is unable to perceive spiritual truth. His unbelief blinds him to the things of God. The Apostle Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The Pharisees' spiritual unbelief make Jesus' words spiritually incomprehensible. You ever have a conversation with somebody about Jesus, about the gospel, and they just look at you like you have three heads? It's like, I mean, you know, you're talking to them and it's just, just bouncing right off. That's what unbelief produces. Unbelief produces blindness. And so they misunderstand him and they misunderstand him at every turn. But Jesus loves them. Jesus loves them, so he continues to warn them. Keep reading in verse 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Actually, the he here is not in the original text. It's not in the original Greek. It literally reads, unless you believe that ego in me, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Here Jesus is again, in addition to verse 12, where he said, I am the light of the world. Here he is saying even more specifically, he's warning them, you will go to hell unless you believe. You will die in your sins unless you believe that I am. He's claiming the ancient name of God for himself as the only one who bears that name. It is ego in me in the Greek. It speaks of God's beingness, God's eternal existence, and God's exclusive, monopolistic power over life and death. God first used the name with Moses in Exodus 3, as we've seen on a number of occasions. But then after Exodus 3, after he first uses the name, the great name I Am for himself, then you see the name many times in Scripture thereafter. Let me just show you some of them. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. Now the Bible that was used most frequently in Jesus' day, the Hebrew Bible, was the Greek text. Because two or three hundred years before the time of Christ, they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek because the Israelites had stopped talking, had stopped speaking Hebrew in many ways. And so they were afraid the Israelites were not going to have access to the Word of God. So they translated the Hebrew text into Greek. It's called the Septuagint, two or three hundred years before Christ. And so the common text that was used was the Greek text of the Bible, the Septuagint. Guess how the Septuagint translates this language? See now that ego in me. The Pharisees would have picked up on these words, ego in me. You see this in Isaiah 41, verse 4. 
God says, who has performed and accomplished it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, Yahweh, am the first and with the last. Ego in me. Isaiah 43.10 You, Israel, are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that ego in me. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. Salvation is not found in Buddha. Salvation is not found in Muhammad. Salvation is found in the ego in me, in the I am. This is why Jesus drives this point home over and over and over by claiming deity over and over and over. You're like, Jesus, how come you keep doing this? Because this is the core of faith. This is the object of our faith. Not a Jesus of our own imagination, but a Jesus who is the I am, the ego in me, who is God incarnate. The Pharisees understand Jesus' claim. They get it. And by the end of this conversation, they can't control themselves in their rage, in their hate. Turn to the end of chapter 8. Look at the end of, look at verse 57 of chapter 8, which is the end of this conversation. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, ego in me. Not I was. He doesn't say before Abraham was born, I was. He says before Abraham was born, I am. And look at their response in verse 59. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Pharisees understand his claim to be God. And they want to kill him for it. What's the the crime that he's committing? Anybody know? Blasphemy. They're accusing him of blasphemy because they don't believe his claim, but they understand his claim. So when someone comes along and says, Jesus never claimed to be God, that's just a lie. That's not true. Everybody knew he claimed to be God. Even his enemies knew that he claimed to be God. In verse 24, Jesus says, You will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am God incarnate. This is the second time that Jesus has told them that they will die in a state of unforgiveness that they will die in sin, that they will die in a state of judgment. Remember in verse 21, he said, you will die in your sin, singular. Now, he says in verse 24, you will die in your sins, plural. Same Greek word, one's in the singular, one's in the plural. Jesus isn't saying that you need someone to administer to you the last rites on your deathbed so you won't die in sin. He's not saying that. There's only one condition for salvation. There's only one condition for forgiveness of your sins. There's only one requirement for forgiveness of sins. It's not having the last rites on your deathbed or anything else. It's faith alone in Christ alone. Now, you want somebody to come to you on your deathbed and and have a conversation about the Lord. That's, That's probably a wise thing. But you don't need someone to administer last rites to you. 
Because if you've trusted in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Like that. As a product of God taking your faith and forgiving you. What Jesus is saying when he talks about, when he warns them about not dying either in their sin, singular, or in their sin, plural, what he's saying is if you continue in the sin of unbelief for your entire life, such that you die an unbeliever, then you will be separated from God forever. You will be in a state of unforgiveness, in a state of judgment for all of eternity. You will be unforgiven for all of eternity, dead in your sins. Jesus loves His enemies. So he urges them not to die in this condition. Once they die, it's too late. Their opportunity for God's mercy will be gone. Death means separation. Physical death means separation of the body from the human spirit. Spiritual death means separation of the human spirit from God. God is the father of spirits, the writer of Hebrews says. So spiritual death is separation from the human spirit, of the human spirit, from the father of spirits. Once someone dies, we all born, we are all born in judgment. For that matter, conceived in judgment. We're born sinners by nature, unforgiven. And we're only forgiven when we get to the point of faith. In the ego in me, in the I am, in God incarnate, Jesus. But if you live your entire life in unbelief and you actually die without having trusted Christ, then your whole life, you were unforgiven. And the problem is you die, your opportunity to become forgiven expires. If you die without having trusted in Christ. Because your opportunity to become forgiven through faith, is in your lifetime. But if you die without having exercised faith in Christ, then that opportunity to become unforgiven is expired. That's why Jesus is warning these people who hate Him. He's warning them because He loves them. And He knows what's coming. He knows what's coming. He knows the judgment of God is coming. Separation from God, which is spiritual death, is the permanent condition of the unbeliever forever. C.S. Lewis said it so well. There are only two types of people. There are those who say to God, Thy will be done. And there are those to whom God says, Thy will be done. The will of the unbeliever is separation from God. And that's why the unbeliever refuses to believe. Because faith in Christ is an act of submission. But the unbeliever shakes that little tiny fist. I'll show you, oh God. And when the time for forgiveness expires, because the unbeliever has died, now that status of being unforgiven is fixed forever, for eternity. John puts it this way. When he describes the second death, this is really what I'm referring to. It's the second death. The second death is the death that unbelievers go through. There's the first death that every human being goes through. 
Believers and unbelievers. Physical death. But then the second death is only for unbelievers. John describes this in Revelation 20, verse 13 through 15. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The wrath of God is real. The wrath of God is mentioned over 600 times in the Bible. The judgment of God is something horrific. Something terrifying. Something that is coming. We think God is our buddy. We think God is our pal. In our great foolishness. The judgment of God is real. Many pastors, many churches shy away from this. Because honestly, it's uncomfortable to talk about. It's uncomfortable to talk about when it's a one-on-one conversation, and it's uncomfortable to talk about when it's a conversation like this. It's uncomfortable to talk about the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Now, part of the reason it's uncomfortable is because people don't want to hear it, but I love you too much to soft-sell it, and I fear my God more than I fear you. And so I'm going to close this service this morning by quoting a sermon of a pastor of a bygone generation. A sermon that warns of the consequences of dying in your sins. And this sermon warns it, gives this warning in vivid detail. We saw this sermon last year at the 930 service. It's a sermon from a pastor who preached this message in Northampton, Massachusetts in the 1700s. A man who was educated at Yale University, a very different Yale than today. Remember, Yale was started partially to be a seminary. The name of this pastor is Jonathan Edwards. And in this quote, Edwards warns unbelievers about the reality of God's judgment and the lake of fire. It's an extended quote, so I'll ask you to stick with me. Edwards says this in his sermon. The wrath of God burns against them, against the unconverted. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened her mouth under them. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Tis a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed. Tis the fierceness of his wrath that you are exposed to. Then Edward says, we often read of the fury of God. So Isaiah 66, 15, he quotes Isaiah. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. The words are exceedingly terrible. The fury of God, the fierceness of Jehovah. Oh, how dreadful that must be. Who can utter or conceive what such expressions carry in them? Oh, then, what will be the consequence? What will become of the poor worm that shall suffer it? To what a dreadful, inexpressible, inconceivable depth of misery must the poor creature be sunk 
who shall be the subject of this. Consider this, you that are here present, that yet remain in an unregenerate state. He's talking to his congregation. He's not out there on the street somewhere preaching on the the street corner. He's talking to people who have been coming to church for a long time, whose mamas went to church and whose grandmamas went to church. But he's just concerned that they've never trusted in the Lord. They just kind of go as kind of ritual and, and it's the custom and it's culturally accepted. He's concerned about people's salvation. Then I keep reading. That God will execute the fierceness of his anger implies that he will inflict wrath without any pity. When God sees your torment to be so vastly disproportioned to your strength and sees how your poor soul is crushed and sinks down, as it were, into an infinite gloom, he will have no compassion on you. He will not forbear the executions of his wrath or in the least lighten his hand. There shall be no moderation or mercy. He will have no regard to your welfare, nor be at all careful lest you should suffer too much in any other sense than only that you shall not suffer beyond what strict justice requires. Nothing shall be withheld because it is so hard for you to bear. Then he quotes Ezekiel, 6, Ezekiel 8, 18. Therefore I will also deal in fury. Mine eyes shall not spare Neither will I have pity, and though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet I will not hear them. Edwards continues, and he says, Now God stands ready to pity you. This is the day of mercy. But when once the day of mercy is past, your most lamentable and dolorous cries, your most sorrowful cries and shrieks will be in vain. You will be wholly lost. God will have no other use to put you to but to suffer misery. You shall be continued in being to no other end, for you will be a vessel of wrath fitted to destruction. And there will be no other use of this vessel but to be filled full of wrath. How awful are those words, which are the words of the great God. Then he quotes Isaiah 63, verse 3. I will tread them in mine anger and will trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain my raiment. Raiment's an old English word for clothing. Then Edwards points the people to Christ. And let everyone that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women or middle-aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's word and providence. This acceptable year of the Lord, a day of great favor to some, will doubtless be a day of remarkable vengeance to others. Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation, he says. And then he quotes the angel's words to Sodom and, or to Lot and his family when they were in Sodom. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed Close quote. This is an excerpt from the sermon, the well-known sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Is God merciful? Absolutely. Is He loving? No question. Is He gracious? Beyond measure, yes. But make no mistake, 
He is a God of fierce wrath and judgment. And His judgment will be merciless. Because the time for mercy is in this life. But once someone dies in their sins, unforgiven, which is to say they have not trusted in the sin bearer, then mercy is over. And it's the time of judgment. Jesus loves his enemies. And that's why he continues over and over to warn them of what's coming. For those who die in their sins, there will be judgment. For those who refuse to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, there will be judgment. For those who believe that he is the only way to God, there will be judgment. Don't be one of those people. There's no reason for you to be one of those people. God made it easy for you. Easy. You say, I'm not going to believe in a God who would send people to hell. You will. You will. Do not take God lightly. We do so at our great, great peril. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit about the gospel. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you for you are an awesome God. A God to be feared, a God to be loved, a God to be respected and revered. We come to you as fallen, broken sinners, basking in your great mercy and love. We praise you for your compassion that you have showered upon us and for the blessings that you shower upon us, beginning with spiritual blessings. We praise you for what you have done through your Son, that you did not spare him for us. And we ask that you challenge a rebellious world to open their eyes, to submit to you in faith. And we pray these things in the name of his majesty, the King of all the kings, Jesus Christ himself.